Provide the proper resources. September 15, 2008 is one of those days everybody in the business and investment world will remember. The financial downturn had begun in 2007, but when Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy early that Monday morning, we knew the world had changed. I was CEO of Netcoast at the time, and we had been on a winning streak. We were about to complete our 31st consecutive quarter of double-digit year-over-year growth. If things continued, we would be well-positioned for an IPO in the next 24 months. But when Lehman failed, all bets were off. We saw it in our metrics almost immediately. Everything we tracked, deals, revenue, etc., began to move sideways instead of up and to the right. I had seen this movie before, during the dot-com bust, and knew almost immediately that I needed to take dramatic action. At the next board meeting, I presented the most likely scenario. The steady and rapid growth that we had seen in the business was going to end. The fourth quarter revenue was likely to fall below the previous year's number. It would take time to rebuild our growth track record and position the company for an IPO. The one silver lining was that while we were suffering, other companies were on life support. Companies that had been showing slow growth were now shrinking at an alarming rate. The public markets were crushing stock prices as the crisis deepened. I wasn't happy to watch other companies fail, but the situation presented an opportunity to acquire complementary assets at an attractive price. If we could find a good fit, we could significantly increase our revenue and look very attractive when the recovery eventually came. We found the perfect target in a small publicly traded French company. The CEO was trying to figure out how to survive and resurrect a stock price that had fallen to reflect little more than the cash on the balance sheet. Doing a French take private transaction is not for the faint at heart. Plenty of investment banks were happy to have some work to do. We just needed to raise enough money to move forward with the transaction. Over the previous few years, I'd established relationships with numerous late-stage venture capital and private equity firms. Some had almost begged me to let them put money into Netcos. I thought it would be relatively simple to put together the financing for the deal. The numbers were pretty straightforward. We were doing about $50 million in revenue and needed to raise about $50 million to complete the transaction. The company we were acquiring was doing about $60 million in revenue. If I could raise money at a valuation of two times our revenue, then I could more than double our size and give up only a third of the company. The combined entity would have had over $100 million in revenue and been well-positioned for an IPO when the markets recovered. I began the process of talking to potential funding partners. What I thought would be an easy fundraising process turned into a repetitive grind of talking to 46 different firms without finding a single dance partner. Some of the conversations took on such a surreal quality that I could only laugh to keep from crying. One particularly memorable exchange occurred during a conference call with a big-name venture firm. Immediately after, I went through our standard pitch deck showing our long history of rapid growth and efficient operations. The investors asked if I had any questions for them or wanted to hear more about their firm. I said, can you describe your investment time horizon and how you think about getting a return? They answered by saying that they were long-term investors with a five- to seven-year holding period. That made them different, they claimed, from other investors who were focused on quick turns. I had heard this story before, and I knew that under the present circumstances, their reality was probably different from their marketing. So I immediately turned it back on them and asked if they had any questions for us. The only question from this long-term investor was, how's the current quarter looking? I almost threw something at the phone. 31 consecutive quarters of double-digit growth and all they cared about was how the current quarter looked during the worst recession in memory. Six months later, we agreed to sell Netcoast for 3.7 times revenue, 
in case you thought my two times valuation was too much to ask. Any of these firms could have picked up a huge return in the short term if they had funded the acquisition, not to mention that the combined entity would have been worth more and would have had more potential acquirers as well as the possibility of a lucrative IPO. In this situation, I was not able to provide the resources we needed to make the deal happen. And I'll be honest, my track record for providing capital is not great. Raising money is hard. Over my career of leading multiple companies, I have talked to more than 100 institutional investors and have reached a deal exactly once. For this reason, I advise companies to take the money when they can, because it often isn't there when you really need it. No company ever failed because they had too much cash on the balance sheet. Of course, the biggest source of capital within a business should be organic capital, money generated from core operations or sales of products and services. A CEO who cannot grow a company organically will eventually drive it into the ground. Fortunately, my record in providing the right human resources has been much better than my efforts at raising capital. I've spent an incredible amount of time throughout my career seeking out and collecting top talent. More than anything else, my ability to place the right person in the right role has made me successful. I don't think I have any special skill. I have simply made it a consistent focus. Many CEOs seem to believe that talent acquisition, development, and retention are not areas on which they should spend significant time or resources. They often leave them to human resources or to department heads to handle. With little accountability for and few metrics to track the quality of the talent pursued or already within the organization. I hope to convince you in this section that focusing on talent acquisition and development is not only an appropriate role for the CEO, it may also be the role that provides the greatest return on investment. To measure performance, you have to have a standard to measure against, right? This is just as true with people as it is with financials or other goals. In human resources, the standard should take into account the competitive marketplace in which your company operates. Charles Koch's book, The Science of Success, How Market-Based Management Built the World's Largest Private Company, convinced me of this idea. Through his belief in laws that govern well-being, Koch helped build Koch Industries, a refining business his father started, into the world's largest privately held company. Maybe his engineering background and systems approach to management are what made his ideas so attractive to me. To illustrate Koch's premise, imagine you're the owner of an NBA basketball team. You have a point guard on your team who was a phenomenon as a kid, the best player ever from his small town. In high school, he led his team to two state championships and was the most valuable in the state his senior year. In college, he was an All-American twice and was the star player his senior year while winning the NCAA championship. He was a first-round draft pick, and now he's on your team. Sounds like a star, right? Well, actually, he's ranked 24th in the NBA. So, do you want him starting every night for you? No, because with 32 teams in the NBA, most nights he steps on the court, he would put you at a competitive disadvantage. Every person in an organization must be evaluated compared to the competitive environment in which the company operates. Coke's system is simple in that each employee is given a grade of A, B, or C based on the competitive advantage he or she offers the company. A-level individuals perform in their current role in a way that provides significant advantage because it is better than those employees in similar roles at principal competitors. A's, who I also sometimes call A-players, are exceptional contributors to long-term profitability because they are among the top 15% of their peers throughout the industry. A's also contribute to competitive advantage by being aligned with and supporting the values of the organization, which influence the culture. 
and a strong culture is critical to the success of the teams that operate within it. Notice that someone cannot be an A player if he does not support the culture of the organization. It is a primary responsibility of management to ensure that these employees are retained and fully engaged. The company should always be in the market for A-level talent and must continually improve its ability to identify and recruit these exceptional individuals. Management policy decisions should be made based on how this group will react. B-level individuals perform at least as well as their peers at principal competitors. These individuals are between the top 15% and 50% of performers throughout the industry in their current roles. Bs are valuable contributors who consistently meet and may exceed expectations in many areas of performance. They are, collectively, critical to a company's success. They are not an afterthought living in the shadow of A performers. Management's responsibility is to facilitate and empower these individuals in order to grow them into A performers in their current roles or move them into roles that can best utilize their strengths. Performance of C-level individuals in their current role puts the company at a competitive disadvantage by being below average relative to their peers at principal competitors. Cs are not meeting expectations. Management's responsibility is to rapidly develop them in their current role or get them into a role where they can be an A performer. If this cannot be done in a timely manner, the individual should not be retained. Inability to create value at one organization does not mean the same will be true elsewhere in an organization with different values or culture. When I discuss this rating system with other CEOs, they often worry about the sandbagging problem. What prevents managers from rating all their people as A's, they ask? Well, I tell my managers that if they rank all their employees high, they have no excuse for their groups not dramatically outperforming the competition. If they don't, I'll know where the problem is. That usually keeps managers from getting carried away. An important task of the CEO is to review these rankings every quarter. How much time do you spend in the recruiting process? After employees are hired, do you have a way of knowing if the hire was successful? Have you studied your successful employees to find the common threads that might allow you and other leaders to find more of them? Once you have an employee in place, what do you do to make sure they continue to develop and perform? And if they do not perform well, how do you handle it? All of these are critical questions for a CEO. Successful CEOs work hard to deliver whatever resources the company needs to prosper. Capital and people are the two most important. In the Deliver Performance section of the book, I'll also address other resources, such as expertise in the form of advisors and critical relationships with vendors and the community. In this section, I'll explore ways to address budgeting and investment challenges and ways to build a team of A and B players who can ensure your company will succeed. Budgeting versus opportunistic investment. Adhering to budgeting rules shouldn't trump good decision-making. Emily Oster. Even though I have spent most of my career in the CEO chair, I've also worked in several large organizations along the way. The one lesson that has stood out in those experiences is how often management action is driven by budgets and the budgeting process. This is not a positive. In a large company, budgets are often the only tangible plans to which lower-level managers and employees are exposed. While the company may have a vision, it is rarely translated into actionable direction for employees. And so the budget often takes on the role of divine scripture when it comes to making business decisions. In 1997, after selling a small computer business, I was looking for an interesting opportunity 
and I heard about one at Advanced Micro Devices, AMD. At the time, AMD was trying to break Intel's monopoly in the business PC market. They had recently hired a new CIO, who was shocked to learn that almost all the PCs used by AMD employees had Intel chips inside. Because AMD had such a small presence in the PC market, none of the major business PC vendors offered machines with AMD chips. The new CIO made it known that he wanted to change this immediately, which meant they needed a vendor to custom-build PCs for their thousands of employees. My previous business had been a custom PC business, so I knew the market well. Through a friend of mine who worked there, I was able to get an introduction to the project manager and the IT director. I knew that a large company like AMD would need a vendor to deal with the logistical issues associated with buying parts, assembling machines, and providing warranty service. Like most large companies, they wanted to pay on terms, and this would cause cash flow problems for many of the small local vendors that normally do this kind of work. I put together a presentation explaining the problems they would have dealing with many of these small vendors and concluding that if they dealt with me, I could solve them. During the presentation, I could tell that I had clearly hit a nerve by identifying some key issues they were already experiencing. However, I could also tell that one of the executives in the meeting was not buying everything I was selling. When the meeting ended, I thanked them all for their time and waited for a phone call. When it came, I was surprised by the offer. Instead of agreeing to my vendor proposal, the executive wanted to hire me to manage all of their IT vendors. He said I was the first person they had talked to who understood their problems. And while the PC problem was important, they also needed to solve vendor issues across all of IT. I wasn't really looking for a job, but it was something I certainly knew how to do. This is how my first and only voluntary foray into corporate America was launched. Part of my job was to manage relationships with a large number of vendors. Having owned an IT business, I understood how vendors operated and knew AMD was wasting a significant amount of money. A few weeks into the job, I began to regularly notice a group of IT providers in the halls, identifiable by their contractor badges. One day I stopped one of them to find out what they did. He told me they provided desktop support services for AMD and were employed by a local vendor. I went back to my desk and found the invoices for the vendor. I was shocked to see that AMD was being charged $75 per hour for all of these desktop technicians. I knew that they were probably making $20 per hour at most and that the vendor was pocketing the difference. These workers weren't temporary help hired to get us through a particularly busy period. They were the everyday support that AMD employees called on when they had IT issues. I felt like I had just found a gold mine. There were roughly 25 of these contractors, and I figured we could save at least $50 per hour per person if we simply converted these contractors to employees. That equated to about $2.5 million in savings every year. Even for a company the size of AMD, that was a significant savings for such an easy change. I quickly made an appointment with the director in charge of the group so I could present my brilliant plan. After exchanging pleasantries, I immediately cut to the chase. Do you know that we pay $75 per hour for the desktop support contractors? I asked. Yes, he said somewhat proudly. We used to pay $150 per hour. Undeterred by that surprising piece of news, I plowed on. Well, we could hire all of these people as employees and pay them $20 per hour. They would probably cost the company in total about $25 per hour. I've talked to a few of them, and they would rather work for us. But that wouldn't save us any money, the director countered. At this point in my career, being young and stupid, I almost walked to his whiteboard and did the simple math of $75 minus $25 times 2,000 hours. 
but I was so shocked by the answer that I just said, What? Sensing my confusion, he began to explain the intricacies of corporate budgeting to me. Because the budget was already set for the current year, making this change would not save any money, because money not spent from a given bucket would just disappear, rather than become available for other expenses. Also, my plan would require adding headcount. That had not been planned for in the budget, so it would look like he was requesting more resources during the year. That would be perceived as bad planning on his part. He closed by saying, We can look at making the change for next year's budget. I stumbled out of his office, dazed and confused. Now, some people may dismiss this story as just a bad decision made by a weak employee, but I would argue differently. I believe it was a bad process that produced certain incentives that caused otherwise competent employees to act in a way that was bad for the company. The budget process had conditioned this director to avoid any changes during the year, regardless of the big picture benefit for the company. This was a learned behavior. I am sure the CEO had no idea that people in the organization were making these kinds of decisions. Or maybe he did. Budgeting is an important aspect of running your company, as is providing resources for the right investments at the right time. However, if your management system defaults to following the budget, you have a big problem. Instead, focus on inclusive planning, constant reforecasting, and driving productivity. Budget Tyrants and Budget Blowers Some CEOs are budget tyrants. The budget tyrant acts like the budget was a divine creation passed down from an infallible god. This type of CEO will often have a financial background and believe that the key to a successful business is the financial planning process. Deviation is the enemy, and following the yearly budget is the way to reduce variability in the business. Unfortunately for this executive, business is conducted in a constantly changing environment. The budget that was written six months ago, under one set of business conditions, often doesn't apply to today's environment. It is bad for the business, because opportunities that were not part of the plan are often missed or ignored. Also, when executives and managers are not asked to think about spending within the business, they stop behaving like leaders. The organization becomes a plane on autopilot, flying the same path regardless of the changing weather conditions. These types of businesses are ripe for disruption by competitors who take advantage of their slow course corrections. Finding your balance. 1. Do you focus on comparables to budget as your primary metric? 2. Is it possible for executives to rearrange their spending within budget without your approval? 3. If one of your executives found an acquisition or partnership that was great for the company but was unplanned, would it have any chance of making its way through your organization? The budget blower CEO can't seem to help himself. Every shiny object draws his attention. The biggest chunks of money usually go to acquisitions, with new corporate headquarters and a jet thrown in for good measure. Of course, these kinds of shopping sprees cannot occur unless the company is throwing off a significant amount of cash. It may be because of this success that the CEO feels overconfident in his ability to generate returns from any asset. In a 2006 study on CEO confidence, Jeffrey Tate and Ulrich Malmendier found that overconfident CEOs were 65% more likely to make an acquisition, and the effect is even higher if the acquisition does not require external financing. Unfortunately for these CEOs, the market reaction to an acquisition is usually significantly more negative when compared to the acquisition of non-overconfident CEOs. Sometimes, the budget blower is driven by a feeling that the company is being left behind by some new technological wave. Of course, every CEO should be concerned about disruptive forces in her industry, but the basic math 
has to make sense. I once had a Fortune 500 CFO try to justify her boss's buying spree by asking me how I liked the deal, ignoring the price. I wasn't sure on an answer because inherent to any deal is a price that makes the deal work and a price that makes the deal stink. She followed up my quizzical look by stating that $350 million wasn't really very much money for a company their size. And at the time this conversation was occurring, the company was laying off people in order to meet budget numbers for the new year. In my opinion, $350 million is always a lot of money. Finding your balance. 1. Do you often decide on major expenditures that are a surprise to your team? 2. In your company, is there a consistent set of guiding principles, from the top of the organization to the bottom, for how company money is spent? Some CEOs are budget tyrants in one area and budget blowers in another, based on their own interests or ideas about what is best for the company. For instance, one area where budgets often seem to have no meaning is acquisitions. It is amazing to me that CEOs will pinch pennies and subject every expense report to the most detailed review and then decide to acquire a company for hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. Often the price is justified after the executives have already decided to do the deal, even though it's obvious to the industry and the market that they paid too much or acquired when they should have passed. Acquisitions gone wild. I don't mean to pick on Leo Apotheker, but as I write this, Hewlett-Packard has just written off $8.8 billion due to its acquisition of autonomy. It paid over 11 times revenue for the company, which to almost every observer was a ridiculous price. Now HP is trying to claim it was somehow misled by some of the accounting details. There are no accounting details that explain paying 11 times revenue for autonomy. It was a terrible waste of shareholder money by a CEO who felt pressure to do something, even if it was wrong. Of course, Apotheker received a $25 million severance package for his mistake. I would love to see the analysis that showed how HP was going to get its $11 billion back from the deal. This failure to properly consider the interest of shareholders is, to my mind, almost criminal. A CEO must not allow the pressure to do something override his fundamental business sense of profit and loss. Planning, Flexibility, and Productivity So what is a CEO to do? Am I advocating getting rid of budgets? Not at all. Every business I have run has had a yearly budget, but the Budget Balancing Act requires the CEO to consistently align decision-making with the long-term success of the business. Here are some ways to plan well but remain flexible in order to make the best choices for the business. Prioritize the forecasting process over the budgeting process. At Netcoast, the number one performance metric for the sales group was how accurately they forecasted revenue for each quarter, at the beginning of the quarter. Predicting the future is hard, but over time, they developed a process that allowed them to predict new license revenue with a tolerance of less than 5%, more than 90% of the time. This is world-class in the software business, and their success was driven by their strict focus on accurate forecasting. As CEO, I had a one-quarter crystal ball from a revenue perspective which allowed me to properly adjust resources to maximize growth without running out of cash. It also made for much less exciting board meetings. The biggest source of capital is usually revenue generated from sales of core products and services. So it's critical that companies build a sales process that makes this capital source as predictable as possible. The value of a good sales process is that it converts anecdotal data to predictive data. Too many times, sales forecasts are based on hopes and dreams and not the analysis of real data. 
CEOs shouldn't let this happen. Mastering the sales process is critical to prevent the company from being constantly expanded and contracted by the results of a given quarter. Providing the proper resources requires the ability to properly size the organization for the resources available without reacting to short-term issues. Ditching the budget. If you can handle the uncertainty, some experts advocate doing away with budgets entirely and moving to a rolling forecast, which is exactly what Northern Quest Resort and Casino did. Every year, they would spend almost half the year developing the annual budget for the next year, reviewing department projections, asking for verification, and on and on. And so the budget was out of date by the time it was finalized. According to an article in the Journal of Accountancy, Tim Quinn, CPA and Vice President of Finance, said, To go through that whole long, arduous process to come up with a document that's essentially useless, I decided it was kind of a crazy idea. So they moved to a 15-month outlook of revenue and expenses based on analytics and financial software. The outlook updates itself every quarter based on the results of the previous quarter. It's a living, breathing document, Quinn said. It's more in tune with what reality is becoming. The results for the company? The finance staff spends more time on strategy and identifying ways for the company to adapt to changing business conditions. Managers and employees have less of a use-it-or-lose-it or spend-it-to-the-max mindset. And the departments are less siloed because they aren't in competition during the budgeting process and they have to collaborate to ensure the outlook is valid. Sounds pretty good, right? All we have to do is buck tradition for the new age of flexibility. Disperse control. The final say on budget development and compliance must be placed in the hands of the operating executives or leaders in the business, not the CFO. Any significant spending decision has to be considered by whether it advances the goals of the department or division and the company as a whole, not just how it compares to a plan. I tell managers who work with me that the budget is the maximum amount of money they are expected to spend to accomplish their goals. To exceed expectations, they can spend less money and accomplish their goals, or exceed their goals while spending their full budget. The focus should be on achieving the goals of the organization for the least amount of money, not making sure that every budget category in every division or department is in balance or that every dollar available is used up. I touch base with the leaders frequently but I also let them decide how to spend their budgets effectively. They should know better than I. Of course, this common-sense approach will prevent the kind of problems I experienced at AMD only if everyone understands the goals of the organization. Develop smart goals and metrics. One tool that will help you avoid slipping into total control mode is good goals and metrics. I don't mean basic financials. A good CEO measures the performance of every group based on metrics that are aligned with the goals of the company. Managers need to be aware of those goals quarter by quarter and understand how their efforts support them. Otherwise, they will quickly begin to operate out of alignment, moving toward their own purposes. Again, the real problem at AMD was a lack of direction. The budget was the only tangible guidance leaders and employees had to make a decision. With no other guiding principles, the budget became the Bible by which all actions were judged. The fundamentals of the business never entered into the conversation the IT director at AMD should have had a clear goal of delivering high-quality desktop support at the lowest possible price, with a customer satisfaction metric, in addition to cost, attached to that goal. If he found a way during the year to improve those metrics significantly, reduce costs or increase satisfaction, he should have been commended, not penalized. Budgets are static, but business changes on a daily basis. However, in many companies, the only consistent feedback a manager receives is whether or not she is meeting budget, often a budget she had no opportunity to influence. 
If that is the situation in your company, your leadership team will quickly become conditioned to manage to the budget instead of managing to achieve or exceed the goals of the business. I cover goals and metrics in much more detail in the Deliver Performance section of the book. Plan for change and push the limits. I have two favorite questions that I ask of managers who work for me. What would you do if you had significantly more money to spend? And what would you do if you had significantly less money to spend? These two questions force managers to consider the cost-benefit trade-offs necessary to dynamically adapt to an ever-changing business climate. And at the beginning of any given year, you may not know what resources will be available six months later, especially if you are a fast-growth company. I have seen managers suddenly receive a windfall and spend it poorly because they had no plan. I've also seen managers forced to get by on significantly less, yet deliver close to the same productivity. At the end of the day, the company that delivers the most productivity for a given unit of capital will be the most successful company. The CEO must constantly force the organization to make spending decisions in the business context, instead of based on numbers in a spreadsheet. Cheaper and better is often possible, but only if better is clearly defined. It is easy to tell if a company is driven by budget rather than driven by growth and vision. Budget-driven companies tend to make dramatic policy changes, such as a hiring freeze, a travel ban, or eliminating pay increases, in order to improve their numbers on a short-term basis or when it looks like the business is not performing. While easy to enforce, these types of absolutist moves are rarely the best solutions because they often limit your ability to move toward your vision faster or grow out of your slump. I believe that to be a great company, you must have great people, and great people aren't necessarily available on your schedule. A hiring freeze can cause you to miss top performers when they come on the market. Great people are rarely available, and when they are available, it's often because of some sudden disruptive event. When these top performers are available, grab them quickly because they don't stay on the market for long. If your company has a culture built around fidelity to the budget or tightening the belt without thinking clearly about the long term, it won't be possible to make these opportunistic hires. I tell managers to always look for great people they can add to the team. If the company can't afford the additional headcount, people who are not performing should be let go to make room. I have never seen a company that was so full of great people that they could afford to pass on a superstar. The travel ban is another quick-fix method for improving the bottom line. If you think people are traveling excessively or extravagantly, address those issues, but don't lay down a blanket policy. I know a senior manager at a large company who went 18 months before he finally ever met his direct manager face-to-face -face because of a travel ban. Finally, the ban was lifted, and he traveled to headquarters to meet with his boss. One hour after meeting with him, an announcement came out reorganizing the senior manager to a different group. Needless to say, he didn't feel very positive about the company and soon left for greener pastures. Also, the travel ban almost never applies to the CEO or other members of the executive team. I have seen travel bans put in place for the rank and file, while the executive team continues to fly around solo on the corporate jets. This is the kind of behavior that gives CEOs a bad reputation. Sometimes, employees have to sacrifice a little to keep the company moving forward. However, you won't retain your top talent if you don't pay them what they're worth. Banning pay increases for more than a few months is a sure sign that the company doesn't have a plan to get out of its revenue or growth slump. I once met a woman who worked for a company that had eliminated pay increases, even cost of living adjustments, for more than two years. 
They were losing people at an ever-increasing rate, of course, particularly because they didn't pay very well to begin with. The company had a reputation as a cool place to work, great culture, great parties, great perks. At the end of the day, though, people need to feel that they will be more successful as a result of their commitment to the company. People aren't always or excessively motivated by pay, but they will leave if they think that they are not being compensated fairly. When times are tough and you feel the need to reduce expenses, think about your midterm and long-term goals first. Rather than implementing a knee-jerk policy, gather your team and let them know that the day has come for them to review their answers to the question, what would you do if you had significantly less money to spend? Smart leaders, that top talent you scooped up when it was available, and strong teams will find ways to weather the storm and come out whole on the other side. How you manage your financials influences and is influenced by the culture of your organization. If you want to build a high-performing organization, you need to trust your managers to make smart decisions, but also give them the tools and information they need to stay aligned with company goals. Sticking to a budget is not necessarily the best sign of a business's or a manager's success. Growth, profitability, and flexibility matter more. Finding your balance. 1. Does your team do an objective cost-benefit analysis before a decision is made on any major expenditure? 2. How do you involve your leadership team and managers in the budgeting process? 3. What metrics do you have in place to keep spending decisions aligned with company goals? 4. Do all of your leaders have a backup plan for cutting expenses while maintaining productivity and progress toward long-term goals? Growth versus Profitability Growth is never by mere chance. It is the result of forces working together. James Cash Penny I remember sitting in my office one Friday afternoon, catching up on email as the weekend quickly approached. My staff had learned that I usually stayed late on Fridays, and if they wanted to run something by me, it was a good time to get my uninterrupted attention. So it was no surprise when my software development director popped his head in and asked for a few minutes of my time. We were nearing the final stages of development on a new product, and when he appeared, I immediately began to worry that the project might be behind schedule. Containing my fears, I asked casually, So, how's the schedule looking? His concerned expression was a red flag. Well, the schedule is fine, he said, but I'm just not feeling good about our ability to test the final product. With the limited equipment we have, I'm not sure we will know how the product will behave in a customer environment. I knew where this was heading. Money and in amounts that he felt it would be necessary to get me on board early. So what's it going to cost to properly test it, I asked. I talked to our vendor, and they promised we can simulate a very large environment with their latest chassis. It was a non-answer. How much is it going to cost, I repeated. I negotiated a great deal, and we could have everything we need for $125,000, he finally admitted. At the time of this request, we were doing about $20 million per year in revenue, so the request, while significant, didn't break the bank. Because it hadn't been budgeted, though, it would require me to approve it and decide where the money would come from. I said, let me think about it over the weekend, and we'll discuss it at the staff meeting on Monday. No sooner had my development director left my office, then came in my CFO. Hey, boss, he said. What's up? Well, I said, Jim was just in here, and he says he needs to buy a new test system to properly qualify the new release. Being a CFO, he quickly got to the point. How much is that going to cost? He says the best we can do is $125,000, I replied. My CFO then got that pained expression on his face that CFOs get when any new expenses appear. He repeated the number and said, that's interesting. Interesting is not the word you typically expect to come out of a CFO's mouth when he hears about a large, unplanned expense. I was immediately on guard. 
What's interesting about it, I asked. You know, I've been telling you that we need to upgrade our accounting and business systems. With the growth around here, my team can barely keep up, and we don't have quick access to the data you need. I think we need to bite the bullet and do the upgrade as soon as possible before we start falling behind, he concluded. And just how much is this upgrade going to cost, I asked. I hate to say it, but with the cost of software, implementation, and training, it will be about $125,000. I couldn't help but laugh. In the span of 10 minutes, I was being asked to approve two unplanned expenses of $125,000, and they were as different as apples and oranges. CEOs face this type of dilemma every day. It's unique to the job. How do you provide the proper resources for everybody when your resources are finite? How do you compare competing expenses when they have almost no relation to each other? And how do you make the right choice for your particular goals? For most executives, allocating resources is simplified by the fact that the goal of their department is often, although not always, straightforward. If you are the VP of sales, you are trying to maximize revenue. When you have to decide between two expenses, you choose the one that you think will generate the most revenue. While making the correct decision may be difficult, framing the problem is easy. For the CEO, framing the problem is often not so easy. Even if we simplify things and say that the goal of any company is to achieve long-term shareholder value, it is often unclear how that is best achieved. To simplify the complexity, some CEOs place all their focus on either growth or profitability. Sometimes it's a smart short-term strategy. Focusing only on growth may even be a fine mid-term strategy. As I write this, there's a lot of buzz about the Twitter IPO which raised roughly $2 billion for a company that was in the red in the most recent quarter by $70 million. Investors believe in Twitter's longevity, despite the lack of profitability. Ignoring certain giants, Amazon for one, a company needs both long-term growth and profitability to avoid risking the chance of catastrophic failure. Growth Junkies and Penny Pinchers Every CEO should strive for growth, but it can be an incredibly powerful force. Companies with high growth rates are often valued dramatically higher than slower-growing companies in the same industry. Because of this valuation advantage, many CFOs will push growth at all costs. Pursuing unprofitable ventures just to drive top-line revenue can take a company out of balance. Selling dollars for 75 cents is often addictive. While it is not unusual for a company that is not profitable to go public, it is generally expected that as the company increases in size, economies of scale will take over and the company will move toward profitability. If, as revenue grows, profit margins become even more negative, the CEO may be driving the company toward a death-by-growth experience. Some CEOs become so enamored with short-term monthly and quarterly revenue that they take their eyes off the horizon and miss signs that the future of the company is in danger. Too big, too fast. That's what the media said about Groupon as they reported on the various challenges the company faced during its IPO and the eventual ousting of founder and CEO Andrew Mason. Mason, true to his quirky self, called the company a toddler in a grown man's body less than six months after the IPO. Certainly, the market revealed that the company's IPO came too soon, or at least at the wrong time, with the stock plunging 75% from its IPO high. Problems with accounting and disclosures to the SEC, as well as reports from employees of a high-pressure, even abusive work environment, Leaders in Europe were accused of being slave drivers who used threats to drive employees to achieve unrealistic goals. Created a sense that Andrew Mason was a growth and valuation at all costs, even ethical costs, CEO. It's hard to know whether that was a fair assessment without being inside the company, 
but it was clear from all the results that the company grew too fast for the systems that were in place. Of course, nobody else involved in the IPO, even the underwriters, raised red flags about the $950 million round of funding before the IPO, $810 million of which was paid out to employees and investors. Nobody seemed concerned about the company's working capital deficit, paired with unsustainable growth rates. If it couldn't maintain its revenue growth, it could have trouble covering its old liabilities. Finally, other companies had already successfully eaten into Groupon's market share with similar business models. The attraction of the triple-digit growth blinded everybody to the realities. But eventually, the market responded to those realities as Groupon began to founder. Right now, Groupon's stock price is hovering around $10, although some analysts believe even that is too high. Finding your balance. 1. Will you do almost anything to close a deal? Have you instilled that mindset in your sales team? 2. Have you implemented controls to align spending with projected cash flow? 3. If you are focused on growth and are operating at a loss, do you have a clear plan and potential timeline for heading into the black? The Penny Pincher CEO cares about one thing, the bottom line. He acts like every expense is taking money directly out of the pockets of shareholders. This attitude is often seen in entrepreneur CEOs who have bootstrapped their businesses. No expense is too small to scrutinize, and they spend their spare time reviewing expense reports, looking for that unauthorized bottle of wine or an overly expensive airfare. Spending is controlled at the very top. Every expenditure requires direct approval of the CEO or a similarly-minded CFO. Often, one of them will take on the responsibility of ordering office supplies or other resources the company needs. Like managers who are afraid to deviate from the budget, executives and managers who are scared to spend any money cannot act as leaders. They become passive, waiting for direction from above before acting. Many leadership decisions in business involve an expense in one way or another. This makes for an organization that is slow-moving, risk-averse, and likely to lose any competitive advantage it has. While this is a great way to maintain equity, it's also a great way to create a culture of ignoring opportunities and harming shareholder value in the long run. Finding your balance. 1. Do your employees have the tools necessary to perform at their maximum level of productivity? 2. Compared to your competitors, are your workers more or less efficient? 3. Do you approve any significant expenditures in your organization? Do you approve less significant expenditures? 4. When past revenue projections are compared to actual results, is there a consistent correlation? Clarify and communicate your goal. What is the goal of your company? Maximize revenue or hit a certain level of profitability, or a bit of both? CEOs of different companies will have different answers to this question. For privately held companies that are supporting their owners, maximizing cash flow may be the overwhelming goal. Public companies will be focused on maximizing the share price, which often means trying to positively position the company in either growth or profit against others in the same industry. Private companies that are investor-backed are usually interested in seeking maximum return for those investors, which often means growing as fast as possible. Regardless of the overall goal, it is the CEO's job to clarify the financial goals of the company and communicate them to every member of the team via quarterly plans, annual plans, and a three- to five-year plan. The purpose of these plans is to help the team understand the inevitable short- and long-term trade-offs between growth and profitability, and how making those trade-offs will move the company closer to its vision. The most valuable, successful business would have a high level of profitability while also growing very rapidly. Of course, achieving this combination is almost impossible because high growth is a drag on profitability. 
When you are growing rapidly, you must make investments in people and equipment, providing resources to handle the future production of higher levels of goods and services. These expenses subtract from profitability. If you choose not to provide these resources, your growth will slow over time, but your profitability may rise. The question is, where do you want the company to fall on this spectrum? The Rule of 45 An experienced Wall Street banker once told me about his Rule of 45. He explained that for a company to achieve an exceptional valuation in the market, its annual growth rate plus its operating margin needed to exceed 45%. While this is just a rule of thumb, it is surprisingly valuable in thinking about balancing growth and profitability. At one extreme, it means that if you grow at a rate north of 45%, you can break even or actually operate at a loss and still be rewarded in the market. Fast-growing companies often go through an IPO when they are still losing money because their growth rate is strong enough for people to believe in their ability to generate future profits. After the dot-com bust, though, when companies evaporated because they lacked sound strategies for sustainable growth and future profits, smart investors became more cautious about valuing growth over profitability. On the other end of the spectrum, if a company is not growing or is growing slowly, it needs an operating margin north of 45% to achieve a high valuation. High operating margins are very tough to obtain and even tougher to maintain over time. This is just one supporting point for the idea that companies cannot stagnate for very long and remain valuable or relevant. Use the rule of 45 as a simple way to benchmark your business against the best in the world. If you are striving for a certain growth rate, consider how that might affect your operating margin. If you are striving for a certain level of profitability, consider how that might affect your ability to grow. Establish goals that are realistic, communicate them to your team, and provide appropriate resources. If you want growth, you cannot limit expenses. You have to invest in new ideas, new products, and new resources in order to maximize productivity. But you must balance those investments against the long-term plan for eventual profit. If you want profitability, you will need to provide resources to maximize productivity and maintain enough growth to ensure that the company is moving forward and staying relevant by adapting to the changing market. You may be wondering how I responded to the two leaders at Netcoast who asked me for $125,000 on the same day. Recall from the chapter on vision that our goal at the time was to grow as fast as possible without running out of money. I wasn't sure exactly how either would contribute to our growth, although I knew putting out a stable product would obviously help. So I decided to test for criticalness. I asked each of the managers to find the money in their own departments. When they both told me that they wouldn't pull money from other areas to fund these new expenses, I knew they weren't critical. So we delayed both investments until a better time. Regardless of whether you are prioritizing growth or profitability in your business, you will need to provide the appropriate resources, but you also need to invest carefully and wisely. Finding your balance. 1. How do you establish and communicate the financial goals of the company? 2. Are your goals realistic? Do they acknowledge potential trade-offs between growth and profitability? 3. Do you provide appropriate resources to achieve the goals? What questions do you ask of your leaders when you're making decisions about investments? Recruiting versus hiring. At most companies, people spend 2% of their time recruiting and 75% managing their recruiting mistakes. Richard Fairbank, CEO, Capital One. I was on a flight one day with former Texas Tech football coach Spike Dykes. Spike is a legend in West Texas, where he transformed Texas Tech from an also-ran to a formidable football power often beating his better-funded contemporaries at the University of Texas and Texas A&M. 
I mentioned to Spike how I thought the job of head football coach and the job of CEO were very similar. Both have a set of stakeholders that can be very powerful and demanding. If you win, you're the hero. But a few losses, and everyone thinks they could do the job better. As we were discussing all the great coaches he had worked for and coached against, I asked him how much of a coach's success was due to actual coaching and how much was due to the talent level of the players he recruited. I said, is it 50-50? No, he quickly said. It's 75% the players and 25% coaching. You give me the best players and an average coach, and we will beat the best coach with average players every time. I thought to myself how much that resonated with my business experience. I've always felt that I should attribute the majority of my success to my efforts to get the right people in the right positions. For me, it has been the most important task because I believe that all the strategy in the world cannot make up for a lack of capabilities. If you agree that 75% of the success of an organization is driven by the abilities of the people in the organization, then logic tells you that you should spend 75% of your time on people issues. However, many CEOs spend very little time on recruiting, developing talent, and making sure that good employees stay put. Those tasks get left to lower-level leaders. Here's what that often looks like. Everything is running normally in Company X, until one day a key employee announces she is leaving the company. The manager, clearly stressed out, rushes into the CEO's office and says, Sally, my best employee, just quit. She is going to the Acme company. They offered her 20% more salary and some equity. I asked her if there was anything we could do, but she said her mind is made up and she is leaving in two weeks. The CEO says, This is sudden. I thought things in your group were going great. Did you know she was looking? She says they found her, though I have noticed over the last couple of months that she hasn't seemed as engaged. I just thought she was stressed out about the big project due at the end of the quarter. I don't know how we're going to finish it in time unless we can find someone quick. Later in the Saving versus Trading Up chapter, I'll talk about how to retain your best employees. But for now, let's assume that the horse is out of the barn. What will most companies do to fill the open slot? If the company is big enough to have a dedicated human resources department, the manager will notify HR that he has an opening he needs to fill immediately. After some back and forth over the job description and the proper keywords, the HR group will provide a dump of the latest resumes they have seen that might possibly fit the opening. The manager will then have to sift through possibly hundreds of resumes to identify candidates who would need to be phone screened and then eventually brought in for interviews. Additionally, the manager may reach out to his network of friends and industry contacts to let them know that an opening exists and to solicit resumes through this channel. If the company is too small to have a recruiting function, the manager may draft a job description in his own or even ask the employee who is leaving to help him, and then take out ads on one of the online sites emphasizing the key experience he's looking for in a candidate. This will produce a stream of candidates that the manager must sift through in hopes of finding someone who can fill the job. All the while, a big project is delayed more and more each day the job isn't filled. Is this a recipe for finding the best possible candidate? Do the top performers in an industry send their resumes blindly into a company and patiently wait to hear something? Are top performers often looking for work on job sites? If such a candidate did send her resume in, would anyone looking at it be able to tell that this might be a high-quality candidate for this particular position? Most organizations I have observed treat hiring as a tactical fire drill instead of as a core component of their strategic plan. If you are not regularly recruiting and encouraging every leader or manager in your company to do the same, you will be stuck when you lose a critical member of your team. And you may not have any A-level talent on your team to begin with. A's, even B's, aren't always right there when you need them, 
you must constantly recruit if you want a continuous stream of intellectual capital ready to take on new roles. Finding people with some basic keyword qualifications to fill a position is staffing, not recruiting. Staffing, at best, puts you even with the competition and, most times, puts you at a serious competitive disadvantage. If your business needs the best intellectual capital to be successful, and it does, regardless of your industry, you must build a well-managed recruiting function. Body Counts and Black Swans Many CEOs, especially in larger companies, are not involved in the hiring process. Even if a CEO cannot meet every interviewee, she should find a way to be involved in the hiring process to ensure that the standards she has established are being applied. But for body count CEOs, hiring is a matter of numbers. Her main concern is whether the open positions are filled with warm bodies. Quality is not really a concern, just as long as there are enough people on the bus to carry out her strategy. In this way, the body count CEO is similar to the master strategist I described in the first chapter. While few CEOs would state this position publicly, it is the inevitable outcome when companies focus on filling positions and have no way to evaluate the quality of their hires. Often the entire recruiting and hiring process is outsourced to third-party firms that are compensated based on the number of positions filled. With incentives like that, it's no wonder that the company gets mediocre employees and delivers mediocre performance. Finding your balance. 1. Does the executive responsible for personnel report directly to the CEO? 2. Are executives and managers formally evaluated on their ability to recruit? When the phrase black swan was coined in the English language, such a creature was presumed to be non-existent. When a black swan was discovered, it deepened the meaning of the phrase, used to describe an item or event so rare it could not be planned for. Black swan CEOs are on the hunt for individuals who have such an unusual set of experiences and skills, it is very unlikely that they could ever be found, or if found, that they would work for the hiring company. Job postings guided by these CEOs are a laundry list of qualifications and experiences, degrees and skills, and they rarely want to pay what an appropriate candidate, if one exists, would ask. Good candidates, people who could actually do the job well even if they don't meet every criteria, are scared away by the lengthy qualifications, while the people who overrate their own skills apply in droves. It is a lazy approach to recruiting and shows that the company has not spent time thinking about what they really need in a given position or what type of person would be successful in their company. I often see CEOs fall into this trap when hiring executives. They expect to hire people with spectacular resumes who have worked at bigger companies and have been very successful. The problem is that every top performer I know wants to make a move up when they change jobs, not sideways or down. The only people typically willing to make a sideways or down move are people who don't have a choice because they were unsuccessful in their previous role. Occasionally, top performers will make a sideways move if they want to change industries or head in a different career direction, but the Black Swan CEO probably wouldn't want these candidates. If you put out a Black Swan job opening, don't be surprised when most of the candidates applying are ugly ducklings. How to Guarantee a Hiring Failure I was asked by a small nonprofit to help them hire their next executive director. Because I didn't have great familiarity with the workings of the organization, I asked them to send over the job posting they were using to recruit candidates. When I read the job description, I was flabbergasted. They were looking for someone with years of experience in every different facet of operating a nonprofit, fundraising, grant writing, management, and more, with detailed requirements in each area. My first thought was, wow, if I work really hard, I might be qualified to run this organization in another 10 years. My next thought was, 
I wonder how much they're paying for this position, because someone with this experience will be very expensive. So I called the chairwoman. She told me they had engaged a consultant, and he had advised that they should expect to pay about $65,000 per year, considering the size of their organization. Well, that was clearly a problem when compared with the job description. Anyone reading it would expect the position to pay well into six figures. Then the chairwoman told me that since fundraising had been tight, they could only afford $45,000 per year. With this information, the outcome to me was obvious. They were guaranteed to hire the worst person who had ever had an executive director title. With a job posting, they would scare off anyone who hadn't held the title and couldn't claim experience in multiple areas. And the only person who would accept the job for $45,000 would be someone who had been fired from other positions and didn't have a choice. When I pointed this out to the chairwoman, she posed that they might find someone who was willing to do the job out of the kindness of their heart because it was such a good cause. She was looking for a black swan. It was clear what had happened. They had looked on the web for every executive job director description they could find and pieced together what they thought were the best of each. Excellence and experience in every minute aspect of a job is almost impossible to find, and it leaves no room for growth. Finding your balance. 1. Are job postings in your company scrutinized carefully to ensure that they only include experience that is absolutely necessary? 2. Is it hard to find any candidate who meets the requirements of your job postings? 3. Does it take a long time to fill jobs in your company because you can't get enough candidates? Rules for recruiting the best. If one of your five critical responsibilities as CEO is to provide the proper resources and people are one of those resources, the most important, in my opinion, you will need a rigorous system for maximizing those resources, just as you have an accounting and budgeting system for maximizing your financial resources. That system begins with recruiting. What follows is a list of 10 rules for building a top-notch recruiting function. 1. Recruiting is a continuous process. You can't wait until you have a position open to start the recruiting process. Good people are available when they need a job, and that is not necessarily tied to when you have an opening. Also, the best people will generally already have a job and may need to be wooed to consider making a switch. If you don't begin that process until you are in need, you will be left with an unfilled position for much longer than is good for the company. Instead, be constantly trolling in the market to seek out top performers. As CEO, you must lead this charge. No good college football coach would ignore recruiting and leave it all to his assistants. In the same way, a CEO should have a recruiting process that is closely monitored and measured to ensure success on the people's side of the equation. College football teams spend a lot of money and time scouting the country, looking for new talent that might give them a competitive advantage. How much time and money does your company spend in the same pursuit? Sometimes, you'll have to engage with people months, even years, before you hire them. A players, particularly at the executive level, often have to be courted to make a move. These relationships will develop over time, and then one day the person will be ready to make a move. For this reason, it's critical for you to develop relationships with top executives in the industry. You'll have a bench to call on should the need arise. It is rarely a good thing for an executive team to remain static for years without any changes. As I mentioned before, you need new ideas to keep your strategy fresh. 2. Always hire A-level talent when it is available. Unless your business is already filled with A's and you don't ever plan on growing, why would you turn down a top performer? In the nine years it took to build Netcoast from the ground up, I hired every A player that would take a job with us. Top performers usually come in the market because of some disruptive event, 
a business closing, major restructuring, or a change in family situation. You have to take them when you can get them. By definition, A-level individuals add more value to your business than they cost. So when I didn't have a job for an A, I created one. Most companies don't take advantage when these talented individuals become available. I watched this type of recruiting failure happen to an exceptionally talented woman I know. She had a 4.0 GPA while obtaining her electrical engineering PhD from the University of Texas and is one of the world's experts in computer network management. While she was perfectly happy at her job, the company announced they were closing the facility where she worked. They wanted her to relocate, but she wasn't interested in leaving Austin. I knew an executive at a local network management firm, so I passed a resume along to him. The company had recently gone public and was considered a high flyer at the time. The executive passed the resume to the appropriate department head. The department head gave the resume a cursory glance and tossed it aside. Looks interesting, he remarked, but I don't have a position available. He didn't even bother to contact her and have a conversation. She didn't fit in the box he had drawn for his positions. What happened to the PhD? She started her own business and was the creative force behind a company that sold for $200 million. The once high-flying network management company sold years later for a small fraction of that amount. If your company stumbled across a game-changing talent, what is the chance you would hire that person? 3. Recruiting is a dual sales process. Not only does the potential employee have to sell himself to the company, but the company also has to sell itself to the employee. Over and over again, I've seen companies forget the second part of this equation and just assume that the employee will take the job if it is offered. While mediocre employees probably will, the best performers often have options and will have to be convinced that the opportunity with a particular company is their best option. They can usually afford to be picky. I've spent a lot of time considering the key traits of A players so that I could spot them when recruiting. Unfortunately, that's only half the challenge to hiring a talent. Too many managers spend all their time thinking about what they want in a candidate without considering how they can convince that ideal candidate to come work for them. Every company should identify the unique opportunities they offer that will help them attract the best candidates. Make a conscious effort to put together a list of the 5 to 10 reasons your company is the best place to work. If putting that list together is hard, you probably haven't spent enough time on this side of the recruiting process. While the particular advantages a company can offer will be unique to that company, A's consistently look for these five opportunities. Opportunity to grow. Opportunity to be challenged. Opportunity to win. Opportunity to work for the best. Opportunity for financial rewards. Your ability to demonstrate proof of each of these opportunities will be critical to attracting great performers. The first four opportunities all tie directly to the culture of the business. The best performers know that they can't be successful alone and they need a great team to reach their maximum potential. This is an area where smaller, faster-growing companies often have an advantage in recruiting over larger, more established entities. It is important to share with potential employees the stories of how employees have grown their skills, overcome challenges, and how the company is winning in its market. Exposing potential employees to other A's is also a great way to entice these star performers. And finally, if you want the best, you will have to provide an opportunity for financial reward. However, this does not have to take the form of a giant salary. I find that A players are willing to bet on their ability to make the company successful and will often consider long-term rewards based on that ability. It may require a little creativity on your part, but A's are your source of competitive advantage, so figure out a way to make it work. Because it is often hard for job seekers to really know a lot about a company from the outside, 
how the recruiting process is handled is often used as a proxy in the candidate's eyes for the quality of the company and the opportunities it will offer. If you run a really good process with top-notch people in the recruiting position, you will leave a great impression. Your direct involvement will impress almost every candidate, especially if you are a smaller company competing for talent against larger companies. 4. Time is of the essence Let's return to our stressed-out manager from the beginning of the chapter. He has now identified a couple of candidates who have the proper checkboxed experiences. The interview process starts with someone from HR reaching out to see if the candidate is still available and interested. The candidate is probably asked to fill out a job application and told that the hiring manager will be in touch. A few days later, the manager calls and does a quick phone screen to make sure the candidate has the proper knowledge for the job. If the manager is appropriately impressed, the candidate is brought in for several hours of interviews by the department members and possibly others outside the department. Because the team members often have little hiring experience, the questioning is somewhat random. Because many companies try to interview at least three candidates, it may be weeks before the candidates hear whether they have a job offer or not. Then, they may be asked to come back in to meet with the big boss as a formality before they get the official offer. It is quite possible that three or four months have passed since the candidates first submitted their resumes. Now let's think about this process from the potential employee's perspective. Is this how the best people usually find a job? Do the best people usually spend months unemployed? Of course not. This hiring process almost guarantees that the only people hired are mediocre or poor performers who don't have any other options. Most people can't afford to spend months unemployed waiting for a company to complete their search. The approach also assumes that the job open is highly valuable and that the potential employees must compete to get it. While that may be true in rare circumstances, I have always found that top performers are the truly rare commodity and the companies should be competing to get them. The best people, if they do decide to switch jobs, often have numerous jobs to choose from. Former colleagues are likely to be actively recruiting them to their new companies, and I find that top performers are often so busy doing a great job that they don't have time to look for other opportunities. When they do become available, it is often sudden and they want to find a good place to land quickly. Being unemployed is a very stressful situation for the individual and their family. If they submit a resume, they are looking for quick feedback and someone who can recognize their unique potential. Potential employees are usually the most excited about working at a company the moment they push the send button and submit a resume. At this instant, they have made the decision to make a change and are hopeful that they will quickly be in a new job. Every day that goes by without hearing from the company causes their enthusiasm to wane. The same thing is true once the interview process starts. The longer the time between interview and offer, the less excitement the candidate feels. In my companies, I set the goal of two weeks from when we first get the candidate's resume until we have a job offer in that individual's hands. If the candidate is ready to move, we should be able to take care of everything in that time. If a candidate is an A player, hire her. If you don't think she's an A player, move on. However, this only works if you know that the candidates you are considering are high performers and are likely a good fit for your organization, which is why you have to be recruiting always, not passively waiting to see who shows up. 5. One person has set the bar. We built Netcoast from startup to over 250 employees and I interviewed every potential new hire. As I often joked, I didn't mind interviewing the ones we hired, but I wished I hadn't wasted my time with the ones on which we passed. The problem was, I had to interview everyone to tell the difference. 
Because I interviewed each candidate, I became pretty good at recognizing the most talented individuals. I knew what to expect for a given position at a given price point in the market. Any given department of a company might hire people only occasionally. Therefore, it's hard for managers to know what a good value in the market is at any given time. Candidates had to meet a high bar for me to sign off on the hire. I'll describe my criteria in the next chapter. And that helped maintain consistency across the organization. I think it's important to have one person, if possible, interview all potential employees and set that bar for the organization. It doesn't necessarily have to be the CEO, but I can't think of a much better use of a CEO's time. And if your company hires fewer than 100 people a year, I think you should make the time to meet each serious candidate. In large organizations, the CEO should absolutely interview every candidate for positions in the top three to five tiers of leadership and should know personally several hundred employees in order to get a sense for the type of talent being acquired and developed. One person in each division or group might interview all candidates for whom he or she is ultimately responsible. The goal should be consistency, so those responsible for holding candidates to certain standards should be trained to interview well and should be coached on how to identify the right talent for the job and the company. If the HR department leads the hiring training program, the CEO should review it carefully. If the CEO offers no input, how can she ensure that her vision for the talent and teams the company should be building is reflected? A good book to consult on this subject is Who? The A Method for Hiring by Jeff Smart and Randy Street. Following their methodology will lead to a much stronger hiring process and many more top performers. Some CEOs get it. In her first 18 months as CEO of Yahoo, Marissa Meyer saw the company's stock jump by nearly 130%. Now, most analysts believe that the jump is only partially a reflection of Meyer's good work. The rest is the company's stake in Alibaba, set to go public very soon. Regardless, Meyer is building the confidence of shareholders, and one way she did that early on, despite a fair amount of criticism, was to begin reviewing every single hire. She reviews every serious candidate's resume. For a company of about 15,000 employees, that is hiring all the time. That's a serious endeavor. Sources within the company, though, have made statements that make it clear she couldn't be spending her time better. According to an article in Business Insider, an employee says that one of Yahoo's biggest problems over the past couple years has been B players hiring C players, who were not fired up to come to work and were tolerated too long. I'd want to review all the talent that comes in the doors, too. The revenue from their core business, ad sales, has been dropping consistently as they lose market share to Google and Facebook. If she's going to turn that around, she needs talented people and experienced leaders who can find a way to make it happen. Meyer isn't alone in her approach. I was happy to read this headline on Business Insider. America's hottest CEOs are devoting more time than ever to hiring. The article offered some interesting examples. Dave Gilboa, co-founder of Warby Parker spends 25% of his time recruiting and interviews every potential hire. Mark Zuckerberg spends up to 50% of his time recruiting, and Ariana Huffington interviews every hire at the Huffington Post. This is some proof that it can and should be done. Look for disruptive events. The top performers often become available because of what I call disruptive events. I remember that after the events of September 11, 2001, many companies struggled with the resulting recession. I made it a point to stay in touch with the CEOs of companies that might have employees I would want to hire. More than once, I had a CEO call and tell me that she was going to be shutting down her business and ask if I would take a look at hiring her top people. When another CEO sends you a resume of one of her best people, that is about as good as it gets in terms of references.
Keep your eyes and ears open for these kinds of events. If you hear that a business is struggling, take the time to find out if they have any A's you could pick up, should the worst happen. Acquisitions also may leave A's considering their options. If one of your competitors gets acquired, it's time to go trolling in their waters. 7. Your recruiters must be top people. The people who represent your company in the role of recruiter, employees or vendors or consultants, must be top-notch talent. First, they must be able to recognize the signs of a top performer when they see it. Second, candidates will spend more time engaged with your recruiters than anyone else in your organization. If your recruiters are not professional and knowledgeable, it will reflect badly on the company. For a fast-growing company, the recruiter role might be the most important individual contributor position in the whole enterprise. 8. Cultivate unique sources. While every company might like to hire the top graduate from Harvard or Stanford, many companies have no shot of recruiting at those schools. They simply do not offer the money, the prestige, the growth opportunities, or the locations for which those candidates are looking. Of course, sometimes you look out, but don't make luck your strategy. Instead, look for places that turn out candidates who might have a particular reason to work for your company. At Netcos, we found two sources that proved valuable, but that most of our competitors didn't touch. The first were regional universities in some of the smaller cities around Texas and Louisiana. Because we were located in Austin, many new graduates were excited about the opportunity to move to such a well-regarded city. Also, these smaller schools often were not on the radar of recruiters from the bigger technology companies because they focused on the major national universities. By building up relationships with the staff at these smaller schools, we often got great candidates without as much competition. My alma mater, Louisiana Tech, was a particularly rich source of talent. The second source of great candidates was people leaving the military. Because I served for four years as an officer, I know how to read military personnel appraisals, or fit reps. I also know what part of the military tend to attract the best and brightest. Leveraging this knowledge, we hired several top performers who were finding it difficult to get a job in the civilian world. Of course, we weren't unique in this effort. Walmart has a program for recruiting junior military officers, and GE has a strong track record of acquiring and retaining military talent. And they are not alone. It makes good sense. As a Harvard Business Review article so wisely pointed out, the armed services have been in the business of leadership development much longer than the corporate world has. Think about sources such as these for your business that might be overlooked by your competition. 9. Training is always required. I've seen many hiring managers make the mistake of hiring the candidate they think will get up to speed in the least amount of time. I believe this is a very short-sighted approach. I always tell managers to assume every employee will take three months of guidance to get up to full productivity. There should be a formalized training program, some call this onboarding, for all employees covering everything from where is the bathroom to the vision of the CEO. New hires should meet key executives to learn about the company. Every business is unique with its own unique challenges. Spending the time up front to guide new employees is critically important to a successful recruiting process. 10. Track your performance. I find that while most companies keep metrics on many parts of the business, recruiting is often ignored. I think metrics should be closely tracked and reviewed to continuously improve the recruiting and hiring process. And here are some that I have found useful. Time to fill an open job. If the company is doing a good job of continuously recruiting, this time can be kept to a minimum. If it's taking multiple months to fill every new position, there is probably a problem in the recruiting process. Time from engaging candidate to offer. 
Moving quickly requires the recruiter and hiring manager to be in sync and prepared if the right candidate is found. Percent of candidates accepting offers. Hiring is a very time-consuming process, so it is important not to waste everyone's time going through the interviewing process just to have the candidate turn down the offer. Hopefully, the recruiter and hiring manager are laying the groundwork for an offer from the get-go and properly selling the company to the candidate. If so, this number should be 80% or better. What companies did we lose candidates to? It's one thing if you lose out on potential employees to other high-flying companies, but if you're losing to Joe's Shoe Emporium, something about your company is not very attractive. I once lost this number one graduate in computer science from the University of Texas to Google. While I never liked losing, the fact that it came down to deciding between Netcoast and Google convinced me we were doing something right. Percentage of new hires rated A or B two quarters after hire. Managers should rate their employees each quarter. A-rated performers are those ranked in the top 15% in the industry considering their job and pay. By random chance, therefore, a company would hire an A-player about 15% of the time. However, because A-players rarely look for a job through normal channels, the average company is almost never able to hire an A-player. At the very least, you want to ensure that your hires are Bs. If you find that you are hiring a good number of Cs, you need to reevaluate your process. One of my proudest achievements as CEO has been the track record at my companies for hiring A's. We were successful about 40% of the time, triple what would be expected by random chance and probably 10 times the performance of the typical public company. Again, I believe we achieved these numbers and the resulting business success because I focused effort and time on the recruiting and hiring process. For a football coach, the right players can make the coach look really smart and make up for a lot of coaching mistakes. How hard is it to have success as an offensive coordinator when Peyton Manning is your quarterback? I would rather make my life as easy as possible and not have to depend on doing a great coaching job. If you get the recruiting process right, you make almost every other part of the CEO job easier. That is the definition of leverage. Of course, if you just take what the average HR department gives you, you had better be a really good coach. Finding your balance. What role do you currently play in the recruiting process? How are you setting the bar for recruiting and hiring throughout the organization? Two, is your in-house or outside recruiter an A player? How do you know? Three, what are your primary sources of potential hires? How are you regularly networking with them? Four, what metrics do you have in place for tracking the success of your recruiting efforts? Talent versus experience, knowledge. Great companies don't hire skilled people and motivate them. They hire already motivated people and inspire them. Simon Sinek, start with why. I've always been a huge basketball fan and regularly follow the league and the draft. For me, the 1984 NBA draft is one of those events that sticks in my mind. 1984 was also an Olympic year, and I had followed the Olympic basketball trials closely because my fellow classmate at Louisiana Tech, Carl Malone, was trying to make the team. The coach of the team was the legendary Bob Knight, arguably the greatest basketball coach of his era. The trials were very competitive, and Carl, as well as several other future NBA stars, including Charles Barkley and John Stockton, failed to make the team. During the trials, one player stood out above all the others. He was a skinny junior shooting guard from North Carolina by the name of Michael Jordan. Even for the hard-to-impress Knight, Jordan was clearly special. So special that Knight communicated to his old friend Stu Inman, the GM of the Portland Trailblazers, that Jordan was the best player he had ever seen. Portland had the second pick in the draft that year, and it was well known that the Houston Rockets, with the number one pick, 
would draft Hakeem Olajuwon from the University of Houston. Portland thought they needed a center because they already had drafted Clyde Drexler the previous year to play shooting guard. When Knight talked to Inman, he told Inman that they should draft Jordan instead of Sam Bowie, the highest-rated center in the draft. Inman reportedly told Knight, but Bobby, we don't need a shooting guard, we need a center. To which Knight famously replied, okay, then draft Jordan and play him at center. The rest is history. Jordan went on to become the greatest player in NBA history, and Sam Bowie is the answer to a trivia question. I've made the point a few times now that whenever talent, actually any highly valuable resource, becomes available, you should grab it. Talent is that important to the success of an organization. However, Knight never would have said, you have an open assistant coach position, right? Draft Jordan and put him in it. Even as important as talent is, for some positions, experience is equally important. You need experienced, successful leaders to build teams, and you need the best talent possible to do the work. The challenge CEOs face is distinguishing one from the other. The Resume Snob and the Temp Addict The Resume Snob CEO is a common occurrence in corporate America. This inclination is often driven by either the background of the CEO or by the belief that an impressive-looking resume actually matters. The CEO is often biased by his own experiences and believes that others with those experiences must be just as wonderful as he is. For example, the CEO spent his formative years at IBM, so the CEO heavily favors candidates who also spent their formative time at IBM. If the CEO went to an Ivy League school, all the executives need to have gone to an Ivy League school. By hiring executives with a similar background, the company is handicapped and likely to fall victim to the bias of groupthink. I believe diversity of background and experience, especially among the executive team, is critical to maximize success. If everyone on the team sees the problems the same way, the chance for innovative solutions that provide a competitive advantage is decreased. Sometimes, these CEOs behave similarly to the Black Swan CEO. They favor candidates who seem to have the most amazing combination of experiences. Oh, look, she went to Harvard, and she worked for our competitor. We should grab her. Now, either of those experiences might contribute to the candidate being the right candidate, but on their own, they don't guarantee it. The resume snob tends to be overly impressed with where people went to school, where they worked, or what titles they've held, and less concerned about what they've actually done. Finally, resume snobs sometimes prioritize experience because they believe that a highly experienced candidate will get up to speed faster and require less training. I've seen this happen often in fast-growth companies in which all managers are so busy that they don't think they have time to train. Simply put, this is almost never true. Every company is different, with different processes, a different culture, and a different approach to the work. You have to invest in every new hire to ensure that he or she is successful. But I don't have time to train. Even though I thought I preached a good hiring process until I was blue in the face, I saw people at Netcoast still fall prey to the influence of classic hiring misconceptions. We were hiring for a quality assurance position to replace an experienced employee who had been let go because of poor performance. Our standard process was to have six to eight employees interview each candidate and then meet to gather input from each interviewer. We went in a round-robin fashion with each interviewer, making one comment about the candidate. We used this round-robin method so each interviewer would get their comments recorded without too much influence from what the hiring manager or CEO thought about the candidate. In the debrief, it was clear that everyone at the table, other than the hiring manager, thought highly of the candidate. The comments from the interviewers were textbook A-player traits. Smart, motivated, creative, passionate. Yet every time it came around to the hiring manager, he would say something negative about the candidate's lack of knowledge in a specific technical area. 
To me, this was a classic case of trying to hire experience when what the position called for was talent. The manager was very busy and thought that if he hired experience, he would have to spend less time training the new employee. As I pointed out, this is a classic hiring mistake. After several rounds of this, I couldn't stand it any longer. Hey, I just thought of someone I know who has all this knowledge you're looking for, I said. The manager clearly thought I was coming around to his point of view, so he took the bait. Really? That's great. Do you think we could get him? I said, well, I think he's looking for a job. You could sense the manager's excitement as he asked, how can I contact him? I pulled the plug. I think he's down the hall in his office packing his stuff. Apparently, his manager fired him because he couldn't get the job done. The manager got the point. Experience isn't a guarantee and is often less important than other attributes, especially talent. Finding your balance. 1. Is it well known in your company that you favor candidates from a particular school or company? 2. Do many members of the executive team share common company backgrounds? 3. Take a look at the last few rounds of candidates you've seen. Honestly, which candidates did you assume would be the best candidates, based on their resumes going into the interviewing process? Some CEOs just don't want to commit. The temp addict CEO has a standard answer to every hiring challenge. Let's just get a contractor in here and see what happens. Every time I see this approach to hiring, I am shocked. Imagine an NFL team that needs another wide receiver going out to the market and making a random pick from all the people who played wide receiver in college. The temporary outsourcer, like the body count CEO, often believes that people are interchangeable and one person in a given job is not much better than another person in that job. Any CEO who believes this will not have a very successful career. The individuals who are guilty of this sin wouldn't see it that way. Often, they believe that getting the right people is important at the executive level. Then they wonder why, when the rubber meets the road, the company is poor at things like customer service, frontline sales, or manufacturing. If there is a need for a person in the organization to do a job, it is worth trying to find the best person possible for that position. And that is almost always a full-time permanent employee. Now, I understand that in certain locations or industries, Labor laws make it so hard to terminate employees that it makes sense to hire people as temporary or contract employees. Fortunately, I have spent my business career in Texas, which is an employment-at-will state. Therefore, I always hire the best person possible for every position. Every position from receptionist to CEO can give you a competitive advantage. Don't be cavalier about hiring for any position, or the culture will develop that regards hiring as a necessary evil versus an opportunity for a competitive advantage. Finding your balance. 1. Is it significantly easier in your company to hire temporary or contract employees rather than full-time employees? 2. What is your current ratio of temporary employees to permanent employees? What is your ratio of part-time to full-time employees? 3. Is there an attitude in the company that only some positions are worth investing in? 4. What is your turnover rate for the frontline jobs in the organization? Hire experience to build teams. Hire talent to do work. For every candidate you hire, it's important to decide ahead of time whether experience or talent is more crucial for success in the position. If you are hiring for a leadership position, you will want somebody with experience. Bringing somebody on board who is both new to the company and who has never had experience building a team isn't a great recipe for success. However, if you are hiring for any other type of position, you'll want to hire the most talented person to do the work required in the position. Sometimes that person will have relevant experience and sometimes she won't. The challenge is that many people equate job experience with talent, which is a mistake. 
Having relevant experience doesn't necessarily mean that candidate will be effective. A recent Fast Company article titled How to Hire Someone You Won't Regret in a Month advised against the allure of hiring someone with experience. On the surface, a candidate who has worked for similar companies or competitors seems like an attractive option. The problem with this approach is that relevant experience doesn't always equal success, and it can cause you to overlook candidates who possess stronger core traits that will lead to success at the position. One danger of prioritizing experience is that typically, when you are hiring, you are just adding another person to an existing team. For instance, you need another salesperson, bookkeeper, or software developer. There's already a clear process and workflow in place for how the job is to be done. Hiring managers often think that if they can just find someone with the right experience, that person will be able to hit the ground running. What these managers don't realize is that their approach to the work often differs from the experience of the new employee. The employee comes in and begins doing the job in the way he is accustomed to working, only to find out that the manager wants it done her way. But because the manager hired somebody with experience, she didn't bother to train the new employee carefully. This is very frustrating for both. The manager feels like she is losing time every day, while the employee feels offended that his experience is being discounted. If you hire people with experience, they will expect you to let them use that experience. As the saying goes, be careful what you wish for. In my personal experience, it is often far easier to train an inexperienced and talented employee than to retrain a more experienced employee in order to eliminate learned habits that are limiting. However, in addition to leadership positions, you may need to prioritize experience for jobs that entail doing something the organization either doesn't know how to do or doesn't currently do well. But don't just look for experience. Look for experience being excellent. Many people have experience being mediocre. The person you want to hire is a person who has delivered exceptional performance while gaining experience. This person will bring not only the skills needed, but process and procedure as well. This is another reason why experience becomes very important when hiring executives and senior managers. Aside from these situations, look for the most productive and talented person you can find, without much consideration for experience. The employee with raw talent may create new ways of solving problems and or develop innovative products or services that the myopia of the more experienced person might overlook. And make sure you have a culture that encourages skills development, creativity, and job advancement. Otherwise, you risk wasting and losing the talent you worked so hard to recruit in the first place. Regardless of whether you believe you need someone with experience or specific talent, I recommend looking for five traits in every candidate you hire. Exceptionalism, job-specific motivation, cultural fit, creative initiative, and value. Five Attributes of Every Great Candidate While your company may hire people in a given year, a particular manager probably hires only a few. Because of this, most managers aren't very good at hiring. If you don't build a culture around recruiting and hiring the best, A's and high B's, your company will quickly fill up with below-average employees, C's, and you will have no competitive advantage. Practice looking for the following identifiers of A's and B's and teach others to do the same to build a top-notch team. These attributes will be more valuable in the long run than straightforward experience. Exceptionalism what I always look for in candidates' backgrounds is something that tells me they are or have a history of being exceptional. Something that tells me they will contribute a whole lot more to the company than just those skills needed to do the job at an acceptable level. How do you identify exceptionalism? Well, people who are exceptional have a history of being exceptional. Somebody doesn't just wake up one day, play a little golf, and go out and win the U.S. Open. 
Tiger Woods didn't just show up one day on the golf course and start beating everybody. No, he was on the Johnny Carson show at age five, hitting a golf ball. He won three U.S. Junior Amateur Championships and one U.S. Amateur Championship. And only after all that did he turn pro and begin to dominate the professional tour. An exceptional person has a history of being exceptional. If the candidate is a recent university grad, you may discount his academic experience and say, well, what job experience does he have? Exceptional candidates were usually exceptional when they were young. They were captains of teams, won speech contests, or ran businesses while getting degrees. They programmed robots at age 16 or won national gaming championships. They were stars in some way. Once people learn how to be really good at one thing, they can often leverage what they've discovered about how they learn to be really good at several things. They have learned how to be great, and they have the passion to do it. When you see these kinds of things on a resume, you may not know how this has anything to do with your company, but you know the candidate can be exceptional. The same traits apply to more experienced candidates. The best people that have worked for me have always had multiple areas of talent. I remember a conversation with my wife when she started training seriously for Ironman triathlons. She found the best swimmers in her age group in town to train with. Austin, Texas has produced many great swimmers, so the pool was filled with national and even Olympic champions. It was no surprise that they were all amazing swimmers. What did surprise her was that they were almost all high-level executives and CEOs. Exceptional people demonstrate the fact that they are exceptional over and over again. So always look for that on resumes. What stories can they tell you? What have they done to convince you they are exceptional? Always look for people who strive to excel at whatever they do. Remember, spending time at exceptional schools or with exceptional companies doesn't necessarily make someone exceptional. I believe we did a tremendous job hiring at Netcoast, but out of 260 employees, I would have rated only about 40% truly exceptional at their jobs. That's a better ratio than most companies achieve, but it's still less than half. Just because someone was hired by a great company does not make her exceptional. The question to ask is, did she do exceptional things? Job-specific motivation. I want to hire people who will be excited by the opportunity that we can provide. Are they looking for a job to pay the bills? Or are they looking for the specific opportunity we are offering? Does our position fit into their career plan? To deliver exceptional performance for the long haul, a candidate will have to feel that he is benefiting from the job as much as the company benefits from having him as an employee. This won't happen if the job is a poor fit right from the start. Companies often post job descriptions that make it clear they're interested in an exceptional candidate. When you're trying to recruit top performers, understand that they want a new challenge or opportunity. They are highly motivated to learn and grow. So doing the same job they have done before will not likely interest them. If they seem interested, be cautious. They may be trying to get a foot in the door. That's great until they become disengaged four months in. I've always tried to hire top performers into jobs that they considered to be the next step in their career progression. To discover this job-specific motivation in the interview process, ask questions that reveal how the potential employee sees himself now and in the future. Does he have a five-year plan? What level in the organization does he think is appropriate based on his experience? Three years from now, what would success in the job look like to him? What specific things in past jobs has he enjoyed? What is most appealing to him about the current job? Is it a primary part of the job or a tangential or minimal part of the job? I've often started interviews thinking a person might be a fit for one job but realized, based on his answers to these types of questions, that he would really be better in another. In every interview, I keep an open mind about how the company might leverage the talents of the exceptional person in front of me. 
Cultural fit. How can you judge if an exceptional, motivated individual will fit in with the culture of your company? First, ask yourself if you've done the necessary work to develop a culture that is inviting for exceptional people. In the next section of the book, I will explore how to build a great culture that drives engagement and high performance. A high-performance culture gives you the added benefit of being able to hire a wider array of people. Why? Because high-performance cultures tend to value creativity, openness, and talent over conformity. They are more tolerant of differences in personality and perspective. Talented people are often oddballs, and oddballs are more open to working with other oddballs. Well, that doesn't mean that cultural fit is not important when selecting candidates. It becomes more important to figure out the few issues that are hurdles to cultural fit, rather than to look for a candidate who fits a particular model exactly. Two issues I look at are the sizes of the companies the candidate has worked for in the past and values. Your company has its own set of cultural norms that every new employee must successfully navigate to be effective. Having spent most of my time in young, smaller companies, I have seen the common cultural clashes that happen when you hire people who have only big company experience to work in small startups. How things get done and what gets rewarded at a Fortune 500 company are far different from those cultural aspects of a young company with 30 people. It's similar to the problem most Americans would face if they went to a foreign country and tried to sell the locals something. Without a strong cultural understanding, it's hard to get people to act. This rule is especially true when hiring leaders. In the next chapter, and in the chapter Rules-Based versus Values-Based, I'll address the importance of values in cultural building and the importance of having employees, especially leaders, who are aligned with those values. If you get any sense that the candidate may not be able or willing to live your values, you should move forward with caution. Ask questions that can help you discover if the candidate has exhibited your values in her past work or values that you believe are antithetical to the culture you are trying to build. In the culture discussion, I've referenced the Gallup Q12 survey for measuring engagement, and therefore culture, in your organization. The most surprising question for most people on that survey is, do you have a best friend at work? A yes answer to this question is a leading predictor of company performance. While I'm interviewing, I think to myself, would this candidate be likely to make a best friend in the office? The question is as good an indicator of cultural fit as most other questions we ask. Creative Initiative Philip Delvis Broughton, the best-selling author of Ahead of the Curve, was visiting with me at Netcos. I'd engaged him to write a history of the company as we prepared for an IPO. He was sitting in my office when somebody knocked on the door and said, Joel, it's time for your 2 p.m. interview. Philip started to get up to leave, but I said, No, stay. I'd like you to hear the interview. Just let me make sure it's okay with the candidate. The candidate agreed, and we began. The position she was applying for was an administrative position supporting the executive team. I began to ask her questions about her most recent job, starting with, what was the job and what did it entail? I worked as the receptionist in a massage place, she said. Did you like the job, I asked? Well, I really got kind of bored, she said, which is what an interviewee says to impress you with his or her diligence and desire for challenge. Once the person came in for the massage and the massage started, there really wasn't much anything to do. I didn't like not having anything to do, so I had to find another job. We talked for a while longer, covering various topics, and then she left. I turned to Phil and said, Okay, what'd you hear? Well, it sounded like she was eager to work because she was bored at this massage place and she didn't have enough to do. Let me tell you what I heard. What I heard is that she doesn't have any creative initiative. I can come up with about 10 things off the top of my head she could have been doing at the massage place. She could have been looking at the books to see which customers hadn't come in during the last month and then calling them. 
She could have been printing out flyers and sticking them up on cars in the parking lot. She could have been creating new displays. She could have been washing sheets. There are a hundred things she could have been doing that would have moved that business forward. She thought of her job as a place where people tell her what to do, not a place where she is supposed to try to help the business succeed in any way possible. Creative initiative is the drive and ability to think of ways to do a job better or to contribute more to the success of the organization. The best people are great at consistently coming up with ideas for how to be better at their jobs. Every company needs people with creative talent. People without a lot of experience, but with oodles of creative initiative, are more valuable than the reverse, experience but limited creative initiative. Because their ideas for growth or progress are driven by the environment in which they work, your environment. You don't have time to tell everybody in your organizations what to go do every day. You want knowledge workers who can take a set of goals and values and convert them into tasks that move the company forward. Another way to find out if someone has creative initiative is to ask questions that force them to generate ideas for actions. For instance, let's say you're hired. What are you going to do tomorrow, in the first week, or in the first month? If people are really good at their jobs, they can give you a plan. I remember interviewing a public relations person once and saying, I don't know anything about PR. If you were me, what question would you ask to find out whether somebody was good at PR? Well, I'd ask them what they'd go do. Okay, what would you go do? The candidate then spent the next five minutes giving me a very detailed, almost hour-by-hour -hour description of the hundred things she was going to do the first day on the job. I hired her. Behavioral interviewing is the way to go. Google was once famous for its almost surreal hiring process, during which a candidate might be asked questions like, how many cows are in Canada? Or pose scenarios that start with, you are shrunk to the height of a nickel and thrown into a blender. But no more. In a public outing of their hiring flaws, Laszlo Bach, Senior Vice President of People Operations, explained in an interview in the New York Times that they had studied the success of their interviews and found that their odd questions or brain teasers were a complete waste of time. They don't predict anything. Google has shifted to more straightforward behavioral interviews, structured to allow them to consistently assess candidates. Behavioral interviewing focuses on asking questions about what people do or have done rather than what they think. Said Bach, you get to see how they actually interacted in a real-world situation, and you gather the valuable meta-information of what they consider to be difficult. Past behavior is a predictor of future behavior. It's that simple. Value The biggest mistake I see inexperienced hiring managers make is failing to understand the business value a candidate provides. It's easy to forget that the fundamental reason to hire people is that they will produce more economic value for the company than they cost. A person who receives $100,000 in total compensation must be twice as productive in terms of revenue growth or market share acquired or productivity improved for the company as a whole or whatever other measure may be appropriate as a person who receives $50,000. If you use a team interview approach, the more expensive candidate will often be chosen because of her greater experience without consideration of her relative value. Sometimes the more expensive candidate is the right hire because she can help you solve more problems that will lead to greater or faster growth. However, you have to make these judgment calls carefully, and you have to make sure your entire team understands the relative value of each candidate in the hiring process. Every employee in your company provides a competitive advantage, or doesn't. Each time you hire, you have a choice to either hire the best possible candidate or to hire whoever is most affordable or available. Look for talent always, and when hiring leaders, also look for experience. Finding your balance. 1. In the past year, did you hire somebody who had great experience yet failed in the position? 
What was the root of the failure? 2. How many people did you have to let go in the past year due to poor performance, not layoffs? Do you think you should have been able to predict what happened? 3. Do you have a method for interviewing that is used consistently across the company? Does it reflect the five attributes described in this chapter? Saving versus Trading Up Associate yourself with men of good quality if you esteem your own reputation, for it is better to be alone than in bad company. George Washington I'm sorry to say that during my short tenure in the IT department at AMD, I learned much more about what not to do than what to do when it came to managing people. Soon after I arrived, I began accumulating responsibilities and staff. At one point, I had 19 direct reports, way too many for a single manager, split between Austin, Texas and Sunnyvale, California. One of those employees was clearly not carrying her weight in the organization. I began to hear reports that she was getting other employees to do her job and was accomplishing about half as much as any other person in the group. I tried to work with her and sent her for additional training, but the problem didn't improve. I kept my boss informed all along the way and was ready to terminate the employee. When I mentioned this to my boss, he told me that she would first have to be put on a performance improvement plan for a quarter before we could get rid of her. I thought this was likely a waste of time, but complied with my boss's instructions. One month into the plan, the employee approached me and told me she had found another job and would be leaving in two weeks. It was all I could do not to cheer when I got the news. I thanked her for providing notice and went running across the campus to give my boss the update. When I told him the news, he didn't seem to be as excited as I was, but I just figured he was busy and I left to celebrate my good fortune. Imagine my shock the next day when I found out that my boss had gone directly to the employee and made a counteroffer. The counter included a significant increase in salary. After a couple of days, the employee decided not to take the counteroffer and still leave AMD, but not before she told everyone in the group about how much she had been offered to stay. Needless to say, I had a morale problem of epic proportions. How was I supposed to explain why my boss thought the worst performer in the group should be the highest paid member of the team? Some leaders, including CEOs, believe that everyone can be saved, possibly because firing someone would require them to admit they made a mistake in the first place. The result is that they fail to save their top performers, who don't want to work with poor performers. On the opposite end of the spectrum, though, are leaders who tolerate no deviation, who expect employees to perform like automatons. The second those employees don't offer consistent performance, the leader boots them out the door. Those CEOs care so little about employees that make layoffs first course of action at the slightest sign of financial struggle. Instead, CEOs need to lead the charge to building amazing teams by providing employees with frequent feedback on their performance, working hard to save A's and strong B's, and moving poor performers who cannot turn it around on to opportunities elsewhere. The Saint and Chainsaw Owl In the summer of 1984, I was lucky enough to go on a trip to Rome with a church youth group. As part of the trip, we were scheduled to hear Mother Teresa speak to an assembly of all the youth groups from the United States. At the time, I was 18, and while I had certainly heard of Mother Teresa, I didn't know that much about her. We crammed into a relatively small centuries-old church for the event. I arrived early, and as more people came in, I was pushed closer and closer to the front until I was in a pew next to the altar. After a while, a short wrinkled figure appeared at the back of the church and began to shuffle toward the altar. When she reached the podium and began to speak, the hairs on my arms stood up. Her voice was soft, but there was a presence about her unlike anything I had ever experienced, or have since. 
The only analogy I can offer is the Force from Star Wars. It was like Yoda had walked into the room, and you could physically feel the shift in the Force. I listened closely to every word as she presented a simple but powerful message of love thy neighbor as thyself. It was by far the most moving spiritual experience of my life, and I've always been thankful that I was lucky enough to be in that church on that day. So if I love all my employees as myself, does it mean I can never fire anyone? That is what saint CEOs may think. The saint CEO values harmony over all other things and doesn't want to deal with unpleasant conversations or confrontations. Almost no CEO likes the idea of firing people, but it comes with the job. The CEO who believes in saving everyone doesn't realize the damage he does to employee morale and particularly the morale of the best performers. If you can't force yourself to handle these situations in a timely manner, it will greatly decrease your credibility within the organization. The Easiest Way to Kill Your Company I was a member of a CEO peer group years ago. The format of the meetings involved reviewing your current business situation at each meeting and discussing what actions each CEO would take. John, the CEO of a manufacturing company, brought up the same problem over and over again each month, a problem of performance with one of his directors. There was always some reason why he hadn't taken the agreed-upon actions. Finally, the fourth time he raised the issue, the leader of the group looked him right in the eye and said, John, if I became CEO of your company tomorrow, what would you do to improve performance? Well, you would fire my manufacturing director, who's causing a lot of the problems, John replied matter-of-factly. Then why the F haven't you done it already? The mentor demanded. The guy knew exactly what he needed to do. He just didn't want to do it. And every day he didn't. He lost a little more credibility with his team and limited the performance of his company. Eventually, a downturn hit, and he was forced to lay off almost half of his staff. Morale actually improved as the dead weight was eliminated, and the company was able to recover when the economy began to grow again. Finding your balance. 1. Is there someone in your organization whom the majority of people in the company think is incompetent? How long has the poor performance been common knowledge? 2. What have you done in the past six months that would build confidence that you will make the right personnel decision in a timely manner, no matter how personally painful it might be? Chainsaw Al was the nickname given to Al Dunlap, a CEO best known as a turnaround specialist for companies like Scott Paper and Sunbeam. Unlike the saint, Al had no problem firing large percentages of the workforce at the companies he was trying to revive. Unfortunately, Sunbeam ended up in bankruptcy after Dunlap was accused by the SEC of a massive accounting fraud and was banned from ever serving on the board of a public company again. Incidentally, he has been included in a number of books and articles on the parallels between the common traits of CEOs and psychopaths. I always worry about CEOs who seem to have no feelings about firing large numbers of people. It's one thing to let a poor performer or someone who does not fit with the culture go, but it is quite another to fire thousands of people indiscriminately in one fell swoop. Remember, caring is a necessary part of leadership. Caring is the belief that you will do what is best for the company as a whole, and the company is composed of its employees. Too many companies get in the habit of reflexively cutting headcount just to make a quarterly or yearly number, without any concern for the employees. Employees can sense whether the executive team is making every effort to do what is best for the company or just sacrificing employees in order to make the numbers for their yearly bonus. The CEO is responsible for properly allocating resources in such a way that prepares for all reasonable contingencies. It is one thing when an event like 9-11 happens, but businesses that routinely cut large percentages of their workforce suffer from poor planning at the executive level. Finding your balance. 1. 
Do you make firing decisions based on meeting financial goals or on the performance of the people being let go? How many times have you made a decision to lay off people for financial reasons? 2. Does your organization believe you would sacrifice personally before firing members of the team? What have you done to help them trust that you care? Instead of layoffs, try engagement. Every company faces economic circumstances at some point, and when that happens, leaders rightly look at cutting costs to avoid bankruptcy or worse. Often, one of the first options they consider is a set of layoffs. But that is not the direction in which George Mkhitaryan, president and CEO of Parrish Medical Center, PMC, in Titusville, Florida, led his team. According to an article in the Gallup Business Journal, PMC was facing a double hit in 2008, recession and the planned closing of the shuttle program at the nearby Kennedy Space Center, which would mean the loss of local jobs and fewer patients over time. The executive team knew they needed to cut costs long-term, not just long enough to ride out the recession. Surprisingly, they put layoffs at the bottom of the options to consider. They tried a few approaches, such as a Lean Six Sigma process, but weren't able to cut enough costs. So they began to have monthly town hall meetings or family budget discussions. At these meetings, they explained the struggle the company was facing in clear terms to all 1,000 employees. And then they asked for help. They needed ideas for cutting costs in a sustainable way, which meant they needed ideas with immediate buy-in from the front lines on up. And that's what they got. Employees submitted more than 300 ideas via their department heads. They were submitted to the Communications and Service Excellence Department, which compiled them and categorized them into certain areas and then sent the list back to the department heads to review and consider for how they would impact patient experience and how they likely were to deliver sustainable cost savings. The company was careful about the ideas they implemented. Yet in the first round of initiatives, they achieved savings of $3.6 million. At the same time, the company was focused on improving its workforce by increasing engagement. They wanted to have a stronger full-time staff, use fewer contract workers, reduce their churn, and improve the customer's experience. They used the Gallup Q12, which I'll discuss in the upcoming Build the Culture section, to guide their actions. While cutting costs, they increased their ratio of engaged to disengaged employees above the world-class ratio of 8 to 1 to a whopping 10 to 1. Now, they have a waiting list of great local talent ready when they need to fill a position. And by 2009, those engaged employees had saved the company $7.1 million. Sometimes, saving is the right choice. Save the best, replace the worst. The best performers recognize that for them to be truly successful, the team must win. And winning is very difficult when some people aren't carrying their weight. The fastest path to mediocrity as a company is allowing poor performers to remain and pretending that it doesn't matter. The best people will see it for what it is and start heading for the exit. Tolerating poor performance is not in the best interest of all concerned. Just like every parent knows, while we love our kids, we often act against their immediate wishes. That may mean giving them a swift kick in the rear when they need it. Follow these three steps to ensure that you are addressing performance issues, both high and low, appropriately. Step 1. Recognize that annual reviews stick you with a poor performer for 12 months. It has always amazed me to hear a leader talk about doing annual reviews. I always want to ask, so, what are you doing for the other 50 weeks of the year? Isn't a leader reviewing her employees daily or weekly or at least monthly? Isn't she always looking for signs of great or poor performance? Or at least recognizing the signs when they're shoved under her nose? I recommend building a culture in which employees are constantly evaluated and provided with appropriate feedback. A culture in which employees know that they will not have to carry weak performers for long. 
In my companies, we have rated every employee as an A, B, or C each quarter. I'm not recommending a full-blown written performance appraisal every three months. Just a judgment call by each leader on each employee. And then some informal conversations to let employees know how they're doing. I review all the ratings each quarter, and if any employee receives a C, I make sure the manager has communicated to the employee that his or her performance is not sufficient and has considered whether the person is in the right position in the company. Step 2. Focus the majority of your time and energy on your top performers. Your best employees are the keys to your success. You must be devoting the necessary time and effort to understand the issues they are facing or the concerns they are raising and do everything possible to address them as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, in most companies, managers and leaders are forced to spend about 80% of their people management time dealing with issues caused by the bottom 20% of their teams. Their poorest performers, documenting problems, monitoring actions, fixing mistakes, and so on. I try to flip the 80-20 rule by spending 80% of my time with the most valuable employees of the company to understand how I can help them, what concerns they have, what ideas they can contribute, and 20% of my time dealing with the rest. Imagine if a head football coach spent more time coaching his third-string offensive lineman than he spent working with a starting quarterback. That would not be the most productive use of time for the team, and it isn't for the company either. I would encourage you to meet with your executive team a couple of times a year to discuss all the A performers in the organization. You should spend conscious effort making sure that those top performers have an appropriate career path and are acknowledged by the management team. A nice handwritten note from the CEO to each one wouldn't be a bad idea either. I've heard managers defend themselves when a star employee on their team leaves by saying that the employee was recruited by another company and got a much better offer. While many managers claim that their employees leave over salary issues, survey after survey has shown that compensation is not one of the top few reasons that people change jobs, although since the start of the Great Recession, compensation has definitely been climbing up the list and is now generally in the top five. Lack of leadership and poor management are certainly cited much more often by top performers than salary and benefits. Anytime a manager tells me that a top employee left over salary, I'm always suspicious. If indeed salary was a factor, it is likely that the manager allowed the employee's compensation to deviate far enough from fair market value that the employee could receive a much bigger offer from a competitor. Leaving a job is a big decision, and most employees won't leave over a 5% to 10% pay bump if everything else is good. For most people, it takes more than 20% more pay for them to consider leaving over salary alone. If a company and manager are closely tracking the market, it will be very rare for employees to receive offers that much higher than what they are making. This means companies must base their salary adjustments on market conditions and not merely on a fixed rate of inflation each year, as many large companies do. Another reason top performers consider leaving is to grow or pursue new challenges. If you want to hold on to them, promote learning and growth at every opportunity. Encouraging employees to continuously improve themselves in their skills and market knowledge not only improves their engagement, but also helps the company react to a constantly changing business environment. Supporting employees who want to go back to school, attend training sessions, or expand their knowledge in another way can provide tremendous long-term value to a company. Employees who are growing in their skills and knowledge will be much less likely to consider changing jobs. Holding on to your best people requires one last effort. Anytime you are making a decision, think about how that decision will be received by the A players in your organization not the average employees or worse, the C players. This tactic will put you on the path to building a high-performance culture 
that keeps your A's engaged. I'll cover culture in more detail in the next section. Step 3. After you give them a chance, trade C's for B's or A's. If a manager gives somebody a C in two consecutive quarters and hasn't already gotten rid of the employee, you can bet that I'm in his office asking, two C's? What's the story here? This person is clearly hurting the team, and there has to be a damned good reason that he hasn't already moved that person off the bus. If you can get the employees to improve their performance rapidly, either in their current position or in another position that is better suited to their skills or talents, you got a problem that must be addressed. Across the organization, lack of performance is the most common reason for making a change in personnel. But employees can damage the health and stability of the company in another way, too. Through misalignment with values. Tolerating employees, especially leaders, who behave in ways that aren't aligned with the company's values can be more damaging to the CEO's credibility than tolerating poor performers. Because you hold the responsibility of owning the mission, vision, and values for the company, the most damaging problem you can face is members of your immediate staff not living the values you are preaching. Any employee may not be able to judge the performance of executives in other parts of the company, but everyone hears the stories when an executive doesn't live the values of the company. There are a million little ways in which this can happen, but it is an issue the CEO must address immediately, whenever it rears its head. If members of your executive team cannot buy into your vision, I believe they must work somewhere else. This is a lesson that it took time for me to learn in my career. If people were delivering results, I allowed them to hang around, even if they couldn't live the values. This was a mistake that cost me credibility with the rest of my team. To be clear, I am not talking about people doing things that are wrong, like stealing. I just mean small things that go against the values. I often see ideas like harmony listed as a core value by a company. I always wonder if the company really means it. Would the CEO fire an executive who delivered superior performance but lost his temper often with employees? Jack Welch institutionalized the concept of prioritizing living the values alongside performance for any leader at GE. Here's how he explained it in his book, Winning. Type 1. Good values, good performance. Type 2. Bad values, bad performance. Type 3. Good values, bad performance. Type 4. Bad values, good performance. Type 1 bosses, good values, good performance, are the people you want to reward and promote and hold up as examples to the rest of the company. Type 2 bosses, bad values, bad performance, have to go, the sooner the better, and usually do. Type 3 bosses, good values, bad performance, really believe in the company's values and practice them in earnest, but just can't get the results. Those individuals should be coached and mentored and given another chance or two in other parts of the company. Most bad bosses are type 4, bad values, good performance, and they are the most difficult to deal with. They often get to hang around for a long time despite their awful behavior because of their good results. Be careful that you don't fall into a common trap when you decide to let an employee go for either reason. I often see CEOs who finally make the decision to replace an executive or employee and then allow the person to save face and make it appear like it was her idea to leave. The whole reason you had to make the move was to protect your credibility, and then you become complicit in a lie, a lie that every in-touch person in the company can see. I understand not wanting to embarrass anyone, and your lawyers may say letting somebody leave is the low-risk approach, but you have to own the decision. The organization must understand that you made a decision to make a change that you believe is in the best interest of the company. Figure out a way to say it to make the lawyers happy, but make sure everyone understands what you did and why you did it. 
Part of being in command means that you will be held responsible not only for the decisions you make to hire and fire individuals, but also for not making the decision to let people go who are clearly not cutting it. You can't just bury your head in the sand and hope they go away. Every day that a C player remains on the job causes the CEO to lose a little credibility with his team. This will cause the performance bar across the entire organization to gradually sink until mediocre performance is the norm. Living the value that people are our most important asset is not always easy, but it is critical for the high-performing CEO. Finding your balance. 1. How frequently are employees in your organization reviewed? What is the process like? What are the ramifications of poor performance? 2. How do leaders in your organization support A players? Does the culture support the leadership practice of spending the majority of your time with top performers? Why or why not? 3. Do you have C players on your team right now? How long have they been on your team? What is your plan for moving them off your team?